3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. And it is the 28th of April. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Priya. Ah, it is... Look, I actually underestimated how warm it would be today. Yes. Yeah, and I totally, you know, I'm wearing I'm, I'm wearing long sleeves, and I absolutely regret it. I feel like I should be wearing shorts and a T-shirt. Um, but, yeah, how are you going this morning? Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the exact same thing this morning, just like I'm completely overdressed for the weather. I'm wearing a full-on coat. But, um, yeah, weirdly warm, summer weather, but winter vibes with the... Late yeah. sunrise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, for uh, this has been quite interesting. I think, like, my uh, temperature regulation has kind of been off because it's been cold in my house and cold in my parents' house that I've been staying at as well. And um, it made me think about the fact that Sweltering Cities just put out its report on the 2021-22 summer survey, which does look at questions of temperature regulation in, um, you know, in residential builds and looking at the ways that people are actually able to manage their temperature. So um, I recommend going to Sweltering Cities. I think you just look them up on Google and their website will come up. And um, it is uh, a group that is involved in advocating for climate adaptive um, builds, but also um, looking at the way that renters and, um, you know, people who are in precarious precarious housing situations experience temperature changes um, through global warming. Anyway, just a little little tidbit there. Uh, But as usual, we have a massive show today. So I'll just jump into what we've got on. First up, uh, Zelda Grimshaw, a campaigner with the anti-war group Wage Peace, joins us to discuss the International Week of Action against arms manufacturer Lockheed Martin, which has been running from the 21st to the 28th of April. And the Melbourne action to stop Lockheed Martin will begin at 11 a.m. today, so that's Thursday the 28th of April at Lincoln Square in the CBD. We're then joined by Jeremy Poxon, who's an anti-poverty advocate for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and he joins us to discuss worker safety for unemployed workers and Workers Memorial Day. We're then joined by Amity Mara, who's a proud transgender Tamil woman from Sri Lanka and Malaysia. She's a member of the Borderless Affirmation Mutual Aid Group, which supports trans migrants to build strong and loving lives on this continent as their true selves. And she's going to speak with us today about the group's fundraising efforts. And you can find out more and donate at chuffed.org forward slash project forward slash borderless dash affirmation. But I'm sure you'll hear much more about this when we speak with Amity at 8. And lastly, we're joined by Josh Cullinan, who's the Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, or RAFU, and joins us to speak about RAFU's demands for a transition fund to support vulnerable workers to exit the industry in the wake of eased COVID restrictions in New South Wales and Victoria. Josh also discusses international workers' solidarity and organising with Bangladeshi unionists in light of the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster and Workers' Memorial Day.
And, yeah, as we've mentioned, uh, we have two interviews today that are going to be touching on Workers' Memorial Day, which falls every April 28th, so that is today, and really reflects on um, and uh, commemorates people that have lost their lives at the workplace, but also people who have injured, uh, been injured or become disabled as a result of workplace incidents. And also, you know, is a, co- is a date to recommit ourselves as workers to the fight for safe workplaces. So really important stuff. And um, I, I think also keep an eye on your socials, check in with your own union and see if anything is happening today. And this is also in the lead up to May Day, which is this Sunday, I believe, mm. the 1st of May. Um, and in light of that, uh, here's a little info about our May Day March. Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall. Followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne Mayday Committee is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and these are the news headlines for Thursday the 28th of April. First Nations listeners, please be advised, these headlines include the name of an Aboriginal person who has died. An inquest into the death in custody of Gundishmara, Jajawurung, Radri and Yoda Yoda woman began this week, probing Victoria's bail laws and healthcare in prisons. The inquiry heard Veronica Nelson reportedly cried, repeatedly cried for help in the three hours before her death in a cell at the maximum security Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in Melbourne's West in 2020. Following her arrest, Nelson appeared in court without legal representation and was refused bail under Victoria's strict bail laws. The inquest will look more broadly at issues of remand and bail, which have shown to disproportionately affect First Nations women. As of 2021, 61% of all First Nations women in custody in Victoria were on remand, meaning they had not been convicted and sentenced to jail on the offence for which they were in custody. In other news, the first ever national strike by aged care workers union members is likely to be announced by the end of this week, after nearly all major providers across the country agreed to join the peak union's dispute with the federal government. This comes as aged care workers continue to express anger with the government's inadequate response to the long-reported understaffing, casualisation of the workforce and low pay, with the situation exacerbated during the pandemic. The strike's action is expected to occur in the next couple of weeks, with members demanding more staff, proper training and decent wages in recognition of their skills and dedication. And finally, in news headlines, New South Wales public school teachers are set to strike next week after a unanimous vote by the union state executive demanding better wages and sustainable workloads. As part of the strike, members will refuse to implement any new departmental policies in the new school term and teachers will be allowed to walk off school grounds when a state government minister is visiting. 
The union demands include better working conditions and a pay rise of between 5 to and 7.5%. Under the current laws introduced by the state coalition government, public sector wages increases are capped at 2.5%. With news of industrial action, the government is under increased pressure to announce whether the wage gap will be scrapped in the upcoming state budget. These have been the headlines for Thursday the 28th of April and you're listening to 3CR. So just to um, add on to that, we were speaking about this a little earlier off air, but we did want to bring to people's attention that um, there's some news coming out of Singapore where a man with learning difficulties has been executed. Um, He was charged with uh, attempting to smuggle a small amount of heroin, and there have been repeated pleas for his life to be spared uh, since he was arrested in 2019. So this is Nagendran K. Dharmalingam. He's a Malaysian national. So he was arrested in 2009 at the age of 21 for attempting to carry 43 grams of heroin into Singapore. And the following year was sentenced to death and has spent more than a decade on death, death row and was Um, was executed yesterday, and campaigners have described this as a tragic miscarriage of justice, but uh, Singapore's Chief Justice Sundaresh Menon has previously stated that uh, Nagendran had been afforded due process, but there are a lot of concerns about, um, you know, Nagendran being a man with an intellectual disability and uh, this not being taken into account in the investigation or the trial, and there were no specific disability-related accommodations made. So, uh, yeah, just expressing solidarity with the family of Nagendran Dharmalingam. Um, he, yeah, you know, lost his life to a system that didn't, didn't take into account um, his circumstances and, uh, you know, this continues to raise questions about uh, Singapore's support for the death penalty. So, yeah, just something to be aware of there. Uh, Did you want to add anything, Malika? No? All good. Okay, well, then that is uh, absolutely the end of the headlines for this week. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. A proud black man. Black man, it should not wonder. Strong spirit. 
First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we might go to a track now. This is Flick by Pookie from uh, their album last year uh, of the same name. said what? I said nothing. Something was in your hair. By touching it, I think I spread it everywhere. Flick, you said what? I said love. It's you that my cranium is full of. That afro, your cranium is full of. I want to see it every time I pull up. Flick, you said what? I said snack. That's what you're looking like. There's nothing that you lack. Brighter than moonlight. Promise a womb bite. Morning, noon, night. Whenever the time's right, I'll tickle your eyesight. Renew your appetite. You know I got a rosy head. The one that you want to grip. Wanna put your lips on this, I'm from Krypton, making me weak. Not just my physique, but everything that I speak. It's everything you seek, but enough about me. I know you got the key.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard that wonderful track called Flick um, by the artist Pookie. And now we're going to go into a new one. This is a new single um, by Marcus Whale featuring Bayang the Bush Ranger. This is Undead, and um, I've been waiting to play this. Yeah. 
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravan. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday morning breakfast show. It is 7.22 in the morning, and the track that you just heard was Undead by Marcus Whale featuring Bayang the Bushranger. Um, absolute banger. And um, I just wanted to let people know about the ongoing fundraising and donation uh, requests from Black Pearl, which is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander creative studio. And it's a community-led studio in Fitzroy, which provides a culturally safe environment for local Aboriginal people who cannot access mainstream spaces. And it is a place to gather and connect, to develop and expand on artistic skills, and to showcase the artistic outcomes of a talented and underrepresented community. And so Black Pearl has been, um, you know, calling for donations uh, of particular items, but also for cash. They've got an ongoing fundraiser. So they've got a list of resource needs that's constantly being updated, um, sorry, constantly being updated on their social media. So that's at Black Pearl Studio Fitzroy. That's B-L-A-K Pearl Studio Fitzroy on Instagram, where you can find out more information about the studio and things that are needed. So this is things like industrial shelving, jewelry making tools and beads, acrylic paints, brushes, easels, you know, art supplies, but also things like tea, coffee, milk, bread, spreads to stock the kitchen, um, and also, of course, they do have that ongoing uh, donation drive for uh, for just cash fundraising. And you can find that information as well through that Instagram account. So that is at B-L-A-K Pearl Studio Fitzroy, where you can see what is needed, get up to date on what's happening at Black Pearl, and also find out how to donate to the fundraiser. So really important initiative. And, um, you know, there's also a call for sponsorships where you can become an in-kind philanthropist philanthropic, sorry, philanthropic, I don't know how to say that word, philanthropic sponsor or an event sponsor as well. So there are plenty of opportunities to support and get involved. And really, this is just such an important, um, an important initiative uh, and, you know, investing in our local community and in the work of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander creatives to have an autonomous space to do this amazing work. So again, Black Pearl Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Creative Studio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Join 3CR's May Day 2022 broadcast on Sunday the 1st of May. 
Here our communities celebrate the achievements of the labour movement and shine a light on their continued struggle for workers' rights everywhere. Starting at 9.15am with a brief history of May Day, we'll bring you coverage and analysis of local and international labour issues, including a live cross to the 2022 Melbourne May Day Rally between midday and 3pm, wrapping up with a Queer Workers Special from 3 to 4pm. Visit our webpage 3cr.org.au forward slash Mayday2022 for all the details. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now joined by Zelda Grimshaw, who's a campaigner with the anti-war group Wage Peace. And Zelda joins us to discuss the International Week of Action against arms manufacturer Lockheed Martin, which has been running from the 21st to the 28th of April. So that's today. And there's a Melbourne action to stop Lockheed Martin on today, which we'll be hearing more about from Zelda. Just some technical difficulties there. I'm going to pop on a CSA and we'll come back to it. Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then, march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall, followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. All right, and we're back. And Zelda, are you with us? I am. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So for listeners who aren't familiar, Lockheed Martin is the world's largest weapons manufacturer and the company's been involved in the production of nuclear weapons, the sale of arms to, uh, to supply conflicts and repression worldwide, including West Papua and Palestine. Now, bearing in mind last year's Disrupt Land Forces actions, which we did interview a couple of folks about on 3CR, can you tell us a bit about the global reach and influence of arms dealers like Lockheed Martin? Well, Lockheed's massive. Um, as you've mentioned, it's the world's biggest, so about $65 billion a year uh, in revenue from the sale of arms. Most of that um, comes from their fighter jets, um, but they also make bombs and missiles, and Hellfire missiles, um, transport aircraft, and pretty much anywhere that you find armed conflict or... Um, you know, so-called counterinsurgency attacks on on civilians, you'll find Lockheed there. So our friends in Colombia, for instance, um, were impacted by Black Hawk helicopters and um, Lockheed owns that company. Um, got um, troop transports made by Lockheed carrying soldiers into the highlands of West Papua on the regular. Uh, so... You have to go in by air, and um, 
and its Lockheed troop transports that are used, which were donated to the Indonesian Air Force by Australia. So Australia actually bought those um, troop transports, the C-130s, and then when when the Air Force upgraded its fleet, they donated four and sold sold the other half at a discount to the Indonesian Air Force, and now we're seeing them landing on airstrips in the highlands of West Papua and um, battalions of soldiers pouring out. Mm. Yeah, it is, you know, really, uh, really hard to kind of underestimate the, the scope and reach of, uh, of Lockheed Martin as an arms dealer, arms manufacturer, and the way that, uh, you know, they've been, I guess, being able to make a profit off a variety of different, uh, you know, Conflicts, counterinsurgencies, repressive, um, you know, government actions. And so, of course, you have been organizing with Wage Peace, which has been working collaboratively with a network of international anti-war groups to mobilize across the past week. So from the 21st to the 28th of April, which is today, to stop Lockheed Martin. What were some of your key goals for this mobilization? And could you reflect on some of the international actions we've seen so far across the past week? Oh, I'd love to do that. Um, well, initially we thought that today would be the date of their AGM, so they always hold it on the fourth Thursday in April, which would be today. Um, so initially it was going to be a day of action on the 28th, um, and our mobilisation goal was to give Lockheed Martin a really bad day. Uh, so we had two goals in the mobilisation. I, I like to set achievable goals so that you, at the end of the mobilisation you can say, yes, we achieved that. Mm-hmm. Um, so although the um, although the hashtag is Stop Lockheed Martin, um, we didn't imagine that in this mobilisation we would manage to shut down the world's biggest weapons manufacturer. So our mobilisation goals were, one, to do something together because this network um, of this international collaboration that you uh, mentioned, we haven't actually done something in the world together before. We've just kind of met to share information and resources and support. Um, but, yeah, this was a proposal, let's let's do something in the world and just see what happens. So we've achieved that goal. <laughs> and the second goal was um, give Lockheed Martin a really bad day. Now, Lockheed Martin pulled a Swifty and changed their AGM to the 21st of April. So we said, all right, let's do, let's make the mobilisation a week long. Uh, so we've seen actions over, um, over the entire week. Just, um, well, overnight, our time, um, activists in Toronto pasted up a corrected advertisement for Lockheed Martin on the wall of the, um, with the deputy PM in Canada. Um, because Canada's, I mean, one of the, one of the pernicious things about these huge weapons companies is the amount of access they get to our politicians. Uh, so it's it's mega state capture. I mean, we have people like Brendan Nelson, our former foreign minister, is now the president of Boeing. Mm. Kim Beasley, former former defence minister, sorry, defence minister, not foreign uh, defence minister, was president of Lockheed for a while. And you can be sure that Peter Dutton is looking at, um, you know, what his job post-defence um, portfolio is going to be. Um, it's part of why they spend the amount of money they do. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, Australian government is giving $30 billion a year to defence manufacturers. Mm. Yeah. So, sorry, I've gone off your question no, no. a little bit. <laughs> but it, it is, um, it's definitely like important to, to look at the sort of connections between, uh, you know, government figures, but then the way that um, political figures cycle in and out of these industries as well. Um, and, you know, recently Raytheon and Lockheed Martin have been chosen by the Australian government to deliver the Sovereign Guided Weapons and Explosive Ordnance Enterprise, uh, which is supposed to, quote, enhance self-reliance and supply chain resilience with the goal of developing a guided weapons manufacturing capability in Australia. So this is from the Australian Defence Magazine. Um, so you can really see like there is um there are active relationships um with these uh, arms manufacturers and also at the national level we uh recently saw the Australian War Memorial face criticism and concern from veterans and their families from historians and also retired staff around the decision to renew a corporate partnership deal with Lockheed so could you comment on Australians general awareness of the relationship of these uh, private and public institutions with arms dealers and maybe gauge the state of anti-war sentiment. I know that's a bit difficult, but in the country, as compared to our leadership as we approach this next federal election? Well, I'll comment on the leadership first, because that's um, the most mm. blatant. Um, so watching um, ScoMo's government over the last three years, defence spending is really the only thing they've done. So they haven't really invested in anything in Australia uh, except um, weapons. So it's a big... Um, we, we sort of knew that this would be a big part of their election push because it's really the only thing that they can claim that they've done is funnel heaps and heaps of public money into the hands of private weapons companies. So it's, it's just a gift. It's just like, here's $30 billion to make more weapons which you can then sell. And, you know, Lockheed have been recipients of that. So have Albert, um, Boeing. Boeing is actually the biggest um, government contractor overall, like biggest supplier of anything to the Australian government at $22 billion a year. So, you know, they're getting their cut of the, of the tax pie. Um, so, yeah, the, the federal government, and, of course, Dutton is relishing his new role as, you know, police of Asia-Pacific, um, and talking about war where there isn't any, um, but yeah, it's it's part of their sort of masculinist ethos that mm. you know what a patriarch does is arm to the teeth, and yeah, it's the misogyny of this government is is through and through all the way through to you know tolerating and ignoring sexual assault in their ranks right through to giving $30 billion a year to arms dealers. It's, yeah, it's yeah. vile misogyny in this government. In terms of the public awareness, I don't feel like the public are as switched on to weapons as they are to fossil fuels, for instance, mm. um, and that's because of the you know immense work and successful work of the climate movement to expose those links. So I guess we're trying to do a similar type of work in um, in the um, anti-militarist movement. At the same time, I would say that um, awareness of the arms trade and of militarism um, and anti-war sentiment in Australia is growing. 
um, partly in response to people like Dutton and ScoMo's wholesale endorsement mm-hmm. of, um, you know, making... Um, it's the ultimate waste industry weapons. Mm-hmm. It's like it's product that is designed to destroy and to be destroyed. It's like you can't get any more wasteful than that. And with the climate on the precipice and a whole earth to to save, I think people are starting to look at the links between militarism and climate destruction yeah, and dispossession of First Nations people. I mean, it, it's militarism that's driving extract or that's enabling extractivism and, you know, the eviction of First Nations people and the pillaging of their land and forests worldwide. So I think those links are starting to become apparent to people um not just in Australia but but globally. Certainly the First Nations uh communities we liaise with both here and in West Papua and um in in Latin America, Brazil in particular, um militarism is very high on their agenda. Mm. Um, because they're at the pointy end of, yeah. of colonisation. Um, yeah. So yeah, I feel like the I feel like the um, the peace movement is is starting to wake up again in Australia. I mean, I I came through you know the sort of eighties when um, feminism and and the peace movement were closely connected and. You know, to be a great feminist was also to be a great peace activist. Mm. Um, and I feel like that that time of, you know, a, a sort of concerted resistance to war and the arms trade is, is coming up again. Yeah. And it will be connected to the climate crisis and to First Nations sovereignty. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, that is a really, really important note, thinking about the intersectional aspects of these um, of these movements and the way that people, um, you know, working in different movements need to engage in solidarity with each other and amplify each other's messages, get involved together, because, you know, uh, war is a massive, massive polluter um, and you know, with the with the latest international, uh, sorry, intergovernmental panel on climate changes, um, reports about heading towards a, a catastrophe and the things we need to do to adapt and mitigate to climate change and the things that we actually can do, um, combating the arms trade and militarism and war is just such a crucial part of that. You know, we can't afford to have um, the sorts of emissions and uh, environmental destruction associated with war you know, if we are to, to engage in any of uh, any of the mitigation and adaptation strategies that are being put forward. So I understand that Wage Peace has been organizing a Stop Lockheed Martin action for today in Melbourne. So what do you have planned and where can people find out more? Um, if you're in Melbourne and you want to come, just come um, to Lincoln Square in Swanson Street. So that's the little park that's opposite the Park Hotel, a.k.a. Park Prison, where refugees were being held. So if you're being a refugee activist, uh, or if you are one, um, you'll be familiar with that space. So we're meeting there at 11, and we've got some minibuses to take people down to Lockheed's office in Clayton. They have a um, a substantial office in um, just off the Princess Highway, 
and we'll be going down there and um and we're going to run a fashion parade at, in Lockheed's office so it's a it's a make art not war kind of statement um i guess i'm i'm interested in showing the kind of world that we want mm-hmm. as well as um trying to take down the, the, the things that are destroying our earth um and yeah people are amazing and uh, creativity is you know unlimited so i'm inviting people to you know you, you don't have to but come and be a bit creative uh, bring your styles bring your crafting equipment we can um, make some costumes while we're there uh, so we expect this will be a disruptive action but we're not expecting arrest mm-hmm. um, today and in Brisbane tomorrow there will be a similar action with music and poetry at a Lockheed um, subsidiary um, and for details on that action you need to get in touch so the way to do that is via our Facebook page. It's probably a, a quickest way. So it's Wage Peace AU on Facebook. There's just all one word, Wage Peace AU. Um, or our Instagram is Disrupt Wars. Excellent. All one word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Zelda. And, yeah, all the best with the action today. I think people should really get informed about this. Have a look as well at StopLockheedMartin.org, where you can also have um, – you've got sort of the full scope of the actions that have been happening across the week where people can have a look at things in, for example, Colombia, South Korea. There's a lot of really amazing organizing that's been happening. But, Zelda, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, You're so welcome, Priya. Thanks for having me. No worries. All right, and that was Zelda Grimshaw, a campaigner with the anti-war group Wage Peace, and Zelda joined us to discuss the International Week of Action against arms manufacturer Lockheed Martin, the largest arms dealer in the world, which has been running from the 21st to the 28th of April. And as Zelda said, there's a Melbourne action today to stop Lockheed Martin, which begins at 11 a.m. at Lincoln Square in the CBD, um, and they're going to go to Lockheed's offices in Clayton and, again, find out more at Wage Peace AU on Facebook or Disrupt Wars on Instagram. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we are now going to be joined by Jeremy Poxon, who is an anti-poverty advocate for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and he joins us this morning to discuss worker safety for unemployed workers, as well as Workers Memorial Day. Good morning, morning Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, happy to be here. Oh, very, very excited to have you on today. Um, I guess starting off today is Workers' Memorial Day. So Workers' Memorial Day aims to recognise those that have lost their lives on the job, as well as its impact on families, co-workers and communities. Could you briefly speak to the significance of this day, especially in relation to your work as an anti-poverty advocate, but also um, in relation to your work with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? Yeah, so Workers' Memorial Day is you know, an important day uh, for many, many organisers and, and us in the, in the, in the labour movement and just people generally, obviously, firstly, you know, many of us, um, some of your listeners uh, might have a family member or might know, know somebody, you know, who have lost their lives, um, on, on the job. Um, you know, we know that, um, the statistics of, um, deaths at workplaces have gotten worse, um, over the last, um, decade. Um, also, um, you know, the, the, the general, you know, adage in the labor movement, um, on this day is, you know, we, we mourn the dead, but we fight like hell, um, for the living. And, you know, whether, whether workers are, you know, full-time workers, casual workers, um, or, or unemployed workers, um, days like today, um, sort of, you know, come and should, you know, encourage us, you know, especially in this dicey time, um, of, of pandemic and, and lockdown easing um, and, and, and all the rest of it um, should, should give us um, renewed focus um, to make workplaces safe. Um, being an anti-poverty advocate and looking after um, unemployed workers, um, you know, we like to draw attention to um, sort of hidden um, parts of the labour market um, that might not get acknowledged on, on days like today. Um, so that's, you know, people that work for the doll site, that. Mm. Um, you know, Indigenous people in, in maybe the CDP program, um, you know, mi- migrant workers, people in disabled workers in, in workshops who get, you know, as low as $3 an hour. Mm-hmm. Sort of like these groups of people um, who, who are part of the workforce, are very exploited, hidden part of the workforce, um, who, who are getting injured um, as well. So we like to draw attention to those folks as well. Yeah, thank you for that um, kind of intro into today's interview, Jeremy. And... I guess this week also marks the anniversary of the death of Joshua Park Ving, a young person who died through work-related injuries. Almost a year on from the task force which investigated his death, could you briefly explain this task force and if there are any updates? Yes, so, so Josh Park Ving, to um, briefly summarise, uh, was, was an 18-year-old uh, unemployed worker uh, who injured himself when I worked for the doll site um, but was forced by his job agent uh, to keep um, doing um, his, his work for the dole and receipt for his roughly $240 a week uh, new start payment um, back then. Um, two weeks after he suffered his first injury, um, he was around um, picking up rubbish and cleaning up the Toowoomba showground, uh, fell off the back of a trailer uh, and, and died um, on, on, on impact. Um, so the government uh, conducted an investigation uh, into, into what happened uh, on the site, uh, they refused to release their report uh, for about five years. 
um, after his death, despite family pleas. They finally released that report, as he said, uh, last year, um, with an incredibly toothless task force that basically gave uh, the, the job agency that put him on the site unfairly and ultimately um, took his life, basically gave them a tip. Um, they you know, acknowledged that there were um, some some gaps in responsibility uh, from his job agency, Nito. They, they acknowledged that um, you know they lacked a bit of bit of duty of care, but broadly, um, the, the task force concluded that um, the, the job agency um, essentially followed the rules um, and couldn't be held accountable um, for his for his death. So that's obviously given us um, you know a lot of renewed anger um, about this program um, and, and how it works. Uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, the special task force um, gave them gave them a tick, basically, you know, we think discredit the whole system. Um, you know, if, if the rules in place um, have led to um, this young man's death and we know have led to many, many thousands of injuries um, for other unemployed workers over the years, we know, you know, these rules um, are completely broken um, and it's given us you know, renewed um, energy, I suppose, um, especially on the behalf of Josh's family and especially on behalf of the thousands of us who, are, who, are, who get forced into these free labour programs um, are renewed and sense that, um, you know, this, this program and programs like these um, are completely broken uh, yeah. top to bottom and, and need to be abolished, um, first and foremost, for, for workers' own safety on these sites because we know many of them don't follow standard workplace health and safety. Yeah, yeah. It's really appalling, and thank you for providing that summary um, as well. I guess, like, also, almost three years into this pandemic, we also need to acknowledge the essential workers, many of whom are people of colour, migrants, um, and young people. We know that essential workers included retail workers, hospitality workers, healthcare workers, to name a few, and many of whom didn't receive hazard pay whilst putting their health at risk. Could you speak to the risks for essential workers during an ongoing pandemic, especially as restrictions continue to ease? Yeah, it's a really dicey time for um, essential workers, and you know we're seeing um, some some strike action and, and work and, and walk-offs in the in the aged care sector. Mm. Um, you know this this week uh, we're in this uh, dicey time in the in the pandemic where um, you know lockdowns obviously have eased. Uh, mask mandates are now being dropped. Uh, we're seeing um, dozens of deaths um, every day now yeah. uh, from from COVID-related um, uh, illnesses, and you know we we also see um, government and um, you know voices of voices of capital in in, in the media now, um, you know being being quite being quite bullying um, yeah. about. You know, workers you know, needing needing to fill these shifts, and you know we've got to we've got to crack down on on bludgers. There's sort of this like double squeeze now for, for folks um, in those industries. That's a great concern for us, especially um, you know trying to organise and, and look after um, insecure workers who you know, like you say, don't have the don't have the protection, don't have don't have the hazard pays. Um, you know, we know people you know are feeling pressured um, despite the health risks. Um, to, to still turn up to shift, uh, to still work uh, while sick, because they know the alternative, and the alternative can be um, doing what basically ended up taking Josh's life. Right? It's like you have a choice between um, you know doing doing some job at a place that 
might not be unionized, might not have, might not have proper health and safety measures, has no protection. You either have like that choice or you have the choice of um, accessing an unemployment payment and maybe being put into a work for the door program or free labor. So it's giving like an essential workers, um, you know, a, a horrible choice and, mm. and position to be in sometimes where there's literally like no option um, that's safe for them. Um, it's kind of a, you know, work in unsafe conditions, um, you know, maybe get sick um, or access Social Security, which we know is, a, is its own nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it putting people in a predicament where there really isn't a choice where their health and safety is prioritised. Um, no, and, and we see the, and see the government um, obviously refusing, um, to, you know, to, to, to acknowledge um, these, these risks at all. Again, you know, we've seen this throughout the pandemic, but um, you know, essential workers are being are being pushed and, and being clapped, and you know, oh, we're on, we're on our way to economic recovery, and, yeah. and, and, and you need to do this. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's, there's very little time, or um, you know, for you know, for government or um, other other business leaders, um, you know, for for workers who um, you know have have major concerns um, you know, about putting their lives on the line for this. Mm, yeah, so true. Um, and for listeners that are kind of interested in the work that you and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union are doing, how can they kind of follow along or support this work? Um, yes, yeah, so you can um, have a look um, at our website at aew.org.au uh, and you can sort of get our, our latest updates um, and fact sheets of, of things that can keep you safe um, in the system uh, if people are having uh, issues. Um, with the job service provider, if, if, if you are being forced um, onto a work for the job site or an unsafe yeah. um, mutual obligation, you can also get on there, call our free hotline um, for for advice, yeah. um, and 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 join up and and and, and become a and become a member. Um, because again, on on days like today, um, Workers Memorial Day, you know, it should be um, should be a, a renewed focus for people um, to, to to join whatever relevant union. Um, you know, they're, they're in, we know, unionised workforces, whether unemployed or uh, full-time employed, are, are safer are safer workforces, are safer workplaces. Um, so I'd really encourage people to uh, look into that today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jeremy. No, thanks for having me. You're listening to 3CR 855am, and we just heard from Jeremy Foxen, who is an anti-poverty advocate for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and he joined us to discuss worker safety for unemployed workers and Workers Memorial Day. I also wanted to let people know about the National uh, Day of Action that's happening today uh, for Defend Our NDIS, and it's being uh, sort of coordinated by Every Australian Counts, Maybe coordinated isn't the right word, but they have collated uh, a set of events that are happening today around this National Day of Action uh, where people are engaging in events like Defend Our NDIS Big Night In, which is happening online and is run by Every Australian Counts, you know, Family Advocacy Social Media Blitz, uh, Bernie's Speak Out Northwest Rally in Tasmania. So there's a bunch of online and in-person events that are happening today, so a National Day of Action uh, where people can find out more about 
uh, defending the NDIS, and this is in the lead-up to the 2022 election. And uh, you can head to everyaustraliancounts.com.au to find out more information, uh, you know, about what events are happening around the country, whether there's something in person or online you might like to attend. So, yeah, really encourage people to check that out. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just coming up to 7.59 in the morning on Thursday, the 28th of April. And we're now joined by Amity Mara, who's a proud transgender Tamil woman from Sri Lanka and Malaysia. And she's a member of the Borderless Affirmation Mutual Aid Group, which supports trans migrants to build strong and loving lives on this continent as their true selves. And she's speaking with us today about the group's fundraising efforts. Amity, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. No worries. So I thought we might start off by discussing some of the general issues facing migrants, in, uh, particularly those with precarious visa statuses in Australia, and how the pandemic has exacerbated hardships for migrants who don't have significant economic resources to fall back on. And um, I was also wondering if there have been any shifts in Victorian and federal government supports for migrants as COVID restrictions have eased. Yeah, so that's the... Uh really important topic. So we actually started our mutual aid group kind of in the early months of COVID, way back in 2020, which feels about four decades ago mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and, you know, what we were seeing was how a bad situation was like very quickly unfolding and how migrants were really being left behind in terms of the supports that were being provided as we all kind of went into lockdown uh, for the first time. Um, and, you know, it's not only that migrants weren't given access to Commonwealth payments and, like, job seeker and stuff, but also, you know, we weren't eligible for job keeper, right? So we weren't an eligible employee. And so that meant that actually a lot of us also lost our jobs because our employers weren't getting those extra payments to kind of maintain us in employment. Um, and obviously we also didn't have access to Medicare. And I can't, I'm not sure I can kind of describe to anyone who hasn't experienced it what it's like to go through a global pandemic without access to affordable health care um, for even the smaller sort of things. And, you know, there were lots of, like, really bad concerns around whether hospitals were reporting or at least sharing data with immigration in some states. And then people were, like, really reluctant to go in, particularly 
uh, people are undocumented or no longer all kind of their visas have run out. Um, and so people were really kind of pushed to the margins of society and kind of forced to end for ourselves. And so this is where we kind of realized that this situation um, needed community support and kind of needed the community to step in and kind of help provide for each other. But even, you know, the little bits of support that were given by state governments, so for example, the Victorian government set up an extreme hardship program. They kind of gave these sort of one-off or two-off payments. Um, and so they've all been rolled back now. All of this has stopped. And, like, they weren't great to begin with. There were huge accessibility problems. People were often asked to provide kind of months of bank statements and documentation, which can be really hard, particularly for trans migrants. Like, lots of them, as they begin living as their true selves, as they socially affirm their gender, lose touch with their families, potentially, like, lose touch with the people in charge of a lot of these bank accounts and have uh, kind of control over a lot of this documentation. Um, and so they really struggled to access a lot of these payments, even when they were there. And now they're not. Um, and, you know, as restrictions are easing, many many trans migrants are in kind of frontline jobs, essential jobs, service jobs, where we're highly exposed and have no support when you're then out sick, right? And you kind of get COVID, you get long COVID, and you're just completely left to fend for yourselves from the government. Mm. Yeah, it really... I mean, you know, we're, we're speaking with um, with other people on today's show about, you know, the fact that it's Workers Memorial Day today and the impacts of the pandemic on on people in the workplace. And I think it is so important to to consider the impact on migrants and undocumented or, you know, precarious visa status migrants who really um, face these intersecting issues about uh, labor precarity, about access to health care, where uh, there are just little to no protections afforded to people. And, you know, as we've seen with the way that the government has kind of been treating migrants across the pandemic, there's very much a sort of uh, hardline utilitarian approach, um, which really, you know, fails to recognize the humanity of people that are struggling within these systems. Now, you mentioned that yourself and a group of trans migrants did come together to form the Borderless Affirmation Mutual Aid Group early in the pandemic, and this was formed to support trans migrants in Australia. Um, what are some of the specific issues facing your community that haven't been adequately addressed by some of the more established migrant support services, and why is it that trans migrants in particular fall through the cracks in the system? Yeah, big Big question. I, like, I, I think my first response would be that we don't fall, necessarily, like, fall through the cracks. Like, I think that's potentially a bit too passive. Like, in a yeah. sense, we're pushed into the cracks, right? Or, like, the system is designed mm-hmm. to make sure we're in the cracks. Um, and, you know, I think the reality is, like, most established migrant support services aren't safe for trans people. And, like, when we try to access them, we face a lot of discrimination or active violence. And many actively exclude trans people, particularly trans women, when you think about places like shelters, legal services, health clinics. Like, I remember when I was, you know, 19 and living up in Sydney, this is quite a a while back now, but, you know, I was leaving a domestic violence situation and I was sent away from three women's shelters. And, you know, I migrated to Australia. I've been here kind of less than 12 months. They didn't really have necessarily heaps of... um, kind of connections or a support network and I was homeless and kind of from a support services perspective there was there wasn't a place for me to go. Um and you know that's a really common story for a lot of trans migrants. They just aren't 
these systems actually allow for it. And there's also almost no services that actually deal with supporting people to affirm their gender, whether that's from little things like getting you access to gender-affirming clothing, teaching you how to use makeup, or to bigger things like supporting you through the kind of legal processes of affirming your gender while you're on a visa that kind of... um, and a system that sort of, you know, like tracks any changes and doesn't like the fact that people may be going by different names and that isn't um, something that they can track by, like, police reports or something. Um, and so it's a really... For us, like, when we were forming the group, we partly wanted to begin filling this gap, um, but we also wanted it to be more than that, right? Because we recognise that this was a systemic problem and you kind of can't fix this systemic problems by continuing to maintain maintain the system that was built to cause these problems. And this is this is why for us, like when we when we run the group, for us really like mutual aid is not charity and it's not just service provision and it's not just giving people money. Like yes, we have a crowdfunder at the moment for allies to support our work. But for us that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Mutual aid for us is about building community systems to keep us sustained, to help us survive, and get us one step closer to, I guess, liberation from all these oppressive systems that are quite literally, like, designed to kill us. Um, and, you know, so for us, this looks like we run, like, a clothes bank where people can come get free gender-affirming clothes when they're beginning to socially affirm their gender and live as their true selves. We have a free groceries program for our members, which is filled almost entirely by food grown by our own members in gardens. Um, and, you know, we have a kind of emergency housing program. So we always have spare rooms available and we have a fund that kind of helps pay for longer term accommodation as well as healthcare and fill out prescriptions as well. Um, and for me, this is like the real core bit about community mutual aid. It's really about building systems um, over the longer term that grow the strength of our community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I really appreciate the point that you made there about uh, being very clear about the fact that mutual aid is not charity, because I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of people have seen a bit of slippage in that language. And it's really about developing these sustainable systems of mutual support and of affirmation of building communities and investing in, you know, investing in community networks rather than, you know, just donating. And donations are very important. And, of course, we want to be able to direct people towards the, the fundraising that you mentioned. But, obviously, what you've discussed covers so much more than, than just that. Um, now, I'm also wondering whether you wanted to comment on the targeting of transgender people as an election issue from the perspective of a trans migrant and whether there are any specific issues around the intersection of trans identity and precarious residency status that you think need greater public scrutiny and deserve more attention from, you know, our listeners, but the broader Australian public. Yeah. So I think this is really important. And I firstly want to acknowledge that this has been a really tough time for a lot of trans people across the trans community. Um, you know, with us in our mutual aid group, we have really been focusing on kind of community care during, during this time rather than necessarily kind of getting involved in the, in the public debate around the election and these issues. Um, and that's really like, to me, the way this is playing out, like this is really political football more than anything else, right? And I personally, I don't think we build the strength of our community by playing their game on their rules. Like, when I think of the main people involved in a lot of this targeting and perpetuating this, you know, people like 
the Liberal Party, the Labour Party, the AIDS, Sky News, like these are all the people who control this really terrible system that kind of is trying to kill trans people on a daily basis. Like they won't liberate us. That's not where we're going to get liberation from. Um, and so we've, like I said, we've really been focused more on kind of caring for communities during this time. And like what I will say though, like particularly from the perspective of trans migrants is these sort of anti-trans laws, which we've obviously also seen like really um, come to the fore around the world in places like the States and the UK recently, like these anti-trans laws and kids, you know, like the kind of mooted sports bill that's at the center of a lot of these um, debates, like they often just codify and universalize what's already and has been for a long time the lived reality of brown and black trans people and poor trans people, which is that you're being kept out of formal economy, out of public spaces, being underpaid, over-policed, facing discrimination and violence at much higher rates. You know, if we take sport as the kind of very specific example, it's already so inaccessible to most trans people and it already excludes most of us. And I'm not even talking about, you know, sport at the elite level where it's virtually impossible when you think about the amount of uh, material resources that go into building a sports career that most trans people, particularly black, brown, and poor trans people, will never have access to. Um, but even, you know, at a community level, the amount of material barriers is huge um, in terms of getting to training sessions, like traveling, equipment, gear. Mm. And then, again, most sports clubs aren't uh, safe environments. They don't really have safe cultures. So I just, I think there's, um, you know, for me, this is, it's one of the reasons, like, we really prefer to focus more on materialist trans projects that actually kind of focus on building the resources and focus on violence reduction um, and through that build collective strength of our community rather than necessarily spending all our time focused on sort of uh, representation and inclusion issues around formalized equality because, you know, even when that equality is there, it's already and has been for a long time kind of a sham mm. um and you know i'm not i'm not saying we sh- we don't care about the targeting of trans people in the election we definitely do and we definitely all should and you know if allies are listening i definitely think like people should continue to care what i'm saying is that you shouldn't only care about us when we're being made to be a political issue like we need to care about the improving the material aspects of trans people's lives yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, like, we're not political football. We are people. These issues aren't abstract. Like, you know, we live in a, uh, a real world that has, like, inbuilt systems that exclude people. And, like, the, the formal law is often only one aspect of that. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, particularly with the political landscape, where that, like, supporting materialist trans projects, like, there's, like, there's a lot of mutual aid groups like ours and a lot of other groups that do really good work that improve trans lives on the kind of day-to-day level and help build that um, capacity and power of the community to kind of stand on its own. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, everything that you said is is so important in terms of, you know, not being trapped in that uh, the the political narrative of using trans people as a political football and actually paying attention to the work that needs to be done on the ground. And I'm, you know, also guided by the work of organizations like Rise Refugee, which raised some really important concerns around the sort of 
trans people being used as a political football and the issue of uh, of the sports bill, uh, talking about the the lived realities and material realities of trans and also, you know, broader LGBTQ uh, community refugees who face, you know, these intersecting harms of border policies um, as well as, you know, gendered oppression. And um, it really it really does uh, speak to the significance of focusing to the concrete realities for trans people in the everyday rather than, you know, looking at particular sensationalized narratives uh, that allow people to kind of have, uh, I guess, a more abstract engagement with trans issues, you know, saying I support trans rights, but without necessarily uh, providing material support or um, any tangible and consistent engagement with uh, the community building efforts that you're doing. So just looking towards wrapping up, Amity, where can people find out more about the Borderless Affirmation Fund and make a donation? Yeah, so we have a chat page if you kind of just Google Borderless affirmation is one of the first things uh, that comes up if you Google just borderless affirmation. Um, we are in the process of kind of setting up some social media accounts, but in the meantime, um, it's also pinned on my Twitter page. You can follow me at Amity Mara. Um, and also, I just want to say that if you are a trans migrant who's listening and who's seeking support, we have a hotline that you can text into, um, and the number is 0456-385-145. Um, and requests uh, can be handled in a number of languages, including Arabic, Hindi, Tamil, Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, Malay, and English. Um, we just ask that you be patient. It, it can take us a while to get back to new people, but we will definitely respond to you. Excellent. Well, Amity, thank you so much for taking the time and encourage people to go donate to that fund. And we will have that information, including the hotline number available in our show notes for today for people that are interested in getting in touch and need that support. So, Amity, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Bye. All right, and that was Amity Mara, who's a proud transgender Tamil woman from Sri Lanka and Malaysia, and she's a member of the Borderless Affirmation Mutual Aid Group, which supports trans migrants to build strong and loving lives on this continent as their true selves, and spoke with us about the group's fundraising efforts. And you can find out more and donate at chuffed.org forward slash project uh, forward slash borderless dash affirmation. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we are joined by Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union or RAFU, who joins us to speak about RAFU's demand for a transition fund to support vulnerable workers to exit the industry in the wake of eased COVID restrictions in New South Wales and Victoria. And Josh is also going to discuss international worker solidarity and organizing with Bangladeshi unionists in light of the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster and Workers Memorial Day. Josh, 
Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Claire. Yeah, of course. So I wanted to start out by discussing that media release issued by RAFWU on the 20th of April, which called for the establishment of a transition fund for vulnerable retail and fast food workers or workers with vulnerable family members to exit these industries in the wake of significantly eased COVID restrictions. Now, what are some of RAFWU's concerns about the impacts of the pandemic and easing restrictions on workplace health and safety? Uh, we've got a, a range of concerns that have gone dates back to the very start of the pandemic. Um, the, the situation in our sectors is that they are all private sectors. Some of our employers are Australia's largest employers. Um, and the pandemic and COVID have had a massive impact on the work of our members, but also on the safety of our members. And despite all the rhetoric at these major employers, safety may, continues to be the last priority um, when it comes to these workplaces. Uh, they were very late to the party in uh, early 2020 and through mid-2020 to do the most simple things like uh, social distancing, uh, to introduce masks, to have effective hand sanitizer, all of those very basic things that we're now well and truly used to, they were all very late to the party implementing them. Um, and we're very concerned about the impact of COVID on the more vulnerable members of the community, including workers in these sectors who some of them have not been able to work uh, since the start of the pandemic and others have had uh, major impacts on them uh, being able to work but also being able to care for their families. Um, so we've now got employers um, openly saying, we had Woolworths say to the Fair Work Commission just a couple of weeks ago, that they have an expectation that all workers will get COVID um, and the workers are expressing paranoia about COVID. Um, we're very concerned that these easing of restrictions are putting our members and their families in harm's way. Uh, we've got over 5 million cases already in 2022, uh, more than double the deaths of the last two years put together. Mm. Um, and this is a real risk of serious illness or death for our members and their family members if they have to work on the front line in retail and fast food. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it is just so concerning to see this blatant disregard for workers' safety. So can you tell us a bit more about how the fund might operate? And is there a precedent for such a fund in Australia? For us, the fund would be a fairly simple one. It would be managed uh, by a government, and a simple application could be made to government, um, to whichever agency was able to take responsibility for it. Um, the fund would be for 12 months of wages and for unlimited access to tertiary education for reskilling. Uh, we think that this is a similar fund to some other industries that have transitioned for various reasons. Forestry in 20 years ago had funds established to transition uh, forestry-dependent communities and workers um, away from uh, the forestry industry. Uh, we've seen um, proposals in Australia, but certainly implemented overseas um, in relation to uh, fossil fuel and climate-damaging industries to transition workers away from those. And of course, it's very ordinary for major employers to have uh, what is ordinarily redundancy for massive technological change. So whether it's the introduction of computers or whether it's other forms of technological advance, redundancy payments at those times see workers leave industries, reskill, have wages while they do that. Uh, for us, this is similar. These are workers who can no longer work because these employers are choosing not to provide an effective and safe workplace mm. um, and for those workers and their families. 
and it's appropriate in those circumstances that a simple fund be used to reskill and to support them in this time. Absolutely. It sounds like an excellent initiative. And RAFU's call to establish this fund is very much in the spirit of Workers' Memorial Day, which is today, the 28th of April. And, um, you know, we've spoken a bit about the meaning of the day. Now, can you speak to the significance of this date for retail and fast food workers beyond the COVID-related issues that you've already mentioned? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a very, very important day uh, for all unionists and all workers. It comes a few days before the massive celebration this weekend of May Day, but it's a very different kind of day when we mourn the dead and fight like hell for the living. In, in terms of retail and fast food, um, we've seen a few key issues across Australia. The, the first is offender behaviour. Um, and so our members are confronted with on a regular basis, heightened during the pandemic, but certainly a massive issue before that, offender behaviour where they are abusing, attacking, assaulting our members in their workplaces. Uh, and sometimes uh, that leads to um, their death. And so um, that, that's a huge issue, has been for a long time. Um, unfortunately, the employers and others in the industry think badges or slogans deal with that. It, it just does not deal with that. Um, the employers have not taken it seriously um, and it's a massive issue. The other, the other one is that the systems in our in our workplaces are often unsafe. These are uh, massive companies. There unfortunately isn't any public sector really involved in retail and fast food. And at the end of the day, if a buck can be made, it'll be made at the exploitation of workers. Mm. So, you know, simple things like expecting delivery drivers to hustle um, in everything they do leads to delivery drivers for pizza companies um, having accidents and they die on our roads Mm. Um, and other systems as well where bodies get broken um, in the workplace um, every day Um, and that's a a huge issue and and then the 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 other one as well is is that the impact of systems of profit on on the minds of workers and so we have bullying um, and systems of insecurity like casualization uh, which have massive impacts on workers right through our sectors um, and vulnerable workers as well. You know, at somewhere like Kmart or McDonald's um, or KFC, over 85% of the workers are under the age of 21. Over 85% are in casual employment. And so the bullying systems in these workplaces, um, which see workers um, always fearful, um, is a huge issue. We, we had just a, a couple of, uh, well, about... A year and a half ago at Woolworths in Victoria, 1,500 workers were moved off overnight shifts. And ordinarily, these things need to have discussions and notice and information. But Woolworths just announced it in the middle of the night mm. to many, many workers who were very dependent on the wages that they earned from working overnight. And Woolworths' own, own um, reports say that they put 10% of their workforce, 150 workers, within a week into what they called hypercare. Now, people make atrocious decisions mm-hmm. when they are confronted with massive change which impacts on them, where they might lose their house or their car or their, their, their way of life. Um, and um, unfortunately, those things massively impact on our members right across Australia every day of the week. Yeah. Um, and so the, the lives of our members uh, are often um, impacted. Um, and on a day like today... Um, we, we remember not only those things, but the systems are still there, 
um, and the systems in the supply chain are still there and uh, that we have to fight um, and organise against them um, because for us as unionists, our members, workers and their lives and their families always come before profit. Absolutely. And now moving to the international sphere, I also understand that you've been involved in organizing with Bangladeshi unionists for some years. And Bangladeshi workers commemorate Labor Safety Day on April 24th. So that's the date of the Rana Plaza garment factory disaster in 2013. Um, Just briefly, could you reflect on the importance of international solidarity and cross-border organizing when it comes to issues of labor rights, particularly with respect to workplace safety? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the fortune of uh, travelling to Bangladesh in 2014 as part of uh, a union solidarity trips with Australia Asia Worker Links and with Victoria Tracel Council and the NTEU. Um, met some absolutely fantastic workers and um, and survivors of uh, the Rana Plaza and Tasreen Fashion uh, uh, murders. Um, and so Rana Plaza, you know, over 1,130 workers were murdered um, on April the 24th in 2013. Uh, these countries have um, woefully inadequate um, industrial uh, labour laws. Uh, places like Bangladesh, they, there is a, a dedicated industrial police force um, armed with, you know, shotguns and um, machine guns that are used to quell and disrupt and stop industrial disputes. Um, and the employers themselves have armies of goons that are used to um, smash unions as they try and establish. Um, it's fundamentally important that um, those uh, like those like us in Australia and right around the world that um, that rely on countries like Bangladesh and these workers to provide us our clothing, um, that we express and engage in direct forms of industrial solidarity and international solidarity to support them in their struggle. In reality, five million workers, five million garment workers in Bangladesh, and less than. Absolutely. And I think it's just so important to remember this, um, you know, for all workers to think about international solidarity and ways that we can get involved in engaging in that on on Workers Memorial Day, Workers Memorial Day today. And also, you know, thinking about that in the lead up to May Day on Sunday. Now, we're going to have to wrap up, Josh, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning and to discuss those important issues. Thanks for having me, Priya. Thank you. All right, and that was Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, or RAFWU, who joined us to speak about RAFWU's demand for a transition fund to support vulnerable workers to exit the industry in the wake of eased COVID restrictions in New South Wales and Victoria. And Josh also discussed international worker solidarity and organizing with Bangladeshi unionists in light of the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster and Workers Memorial Day, which is today, the 28th of April. That's all we've got 
about time for today. I don't think we'll have time for a little rundown, but uh, appreciate you joining us this morning as always. And we'll be back with you on uh, next Thursday. And um, just before we head off, here's a little bit more information about May Day. So, uh, the May Day rally is on Sunday, the 1st of May, 2022, and 3CR is going to have a live radio broadcast from that rally from 12 to 3 p.m. So you can find out more information via our website. That's 3cr.org.au and via our social media. Just look up 3CR and um, hopefully see some people down there at the rally. Uh, until next week, take care. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.